What's up, Teaholics? Welcome back to the Tea on Crime. It's your host, Britt. And I'm the co-host, Jessica, wife and true crime skeptic. Just as a reminder before we get started, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply our own and are only presented to educate. We've linked the case sources in the episode notes below. This week, I am telling you the story of Amy Maholovic. Amy Renee Maholovic was born December 11th, 1978, to parents Margaret Maholovic and Mark Maholovic in Little Rock, Arkansas. She has one brother, Jason Maholovic. Amy was described as being outgoing and kind. She was in the gifted program at school. She loved horses and horseback riding and loved wearing her hair in a side ponytail. She had a cheesy grin about her that just made you love her even more. She was silly and sweet and was a friend to everyone. Amy's mother, Margaret, worked full-time at Trading Times Magazine, which was a classified publication that advertised car sales. October 27th was a Friday in 1989. Residents recalled this being a chilly fall that year. In Amy's all-American small town, they stated that Halloween was their town's favorite holiday. Everyone was busy setting up for this year's festivities, as they did every year. The town went all out for this holiday. I feel like that's a small town thing. That when they go out for all the holidays? Yes, especially Halloween. I always go back to like the Disney Channel, Halloween Town. Just oh, just the small the town three, feel. There like three of those movies? Didn't they just come out with the third one like a decade later? A decade. Yeah, they did. Or, or a decade dec- ago, either way. What? But I always feel like when I was researching the case, I that's what I was picturing was a small town, kind of like in Halloween Town, was everybody just going crazy for that. Well, it's in Arkansas, so yeah, I'd imagine it's a small town. <laughs> yeah, <you're right. laughs> Sorry, everybody from Arkansas. Sorry about that. Amy left her house for school that day around 5.20 a.m., as she did every morning. She told her mom that she would be home late that evening since she had a choir event. Amy rode her bike to school. This was nothing out of the ordinary for this small town community. On this particular school day, Amy watched a presentation from a local police officer with her classmates on stranger danger. Oh, okay. It's ironically sad that just a few hours later, Amy would truly learn the danger of strangers. How crazy is that? All of this takes place on this day that she had that same presentation about stranger danger. Well, is it the person that whatever's going to happen. Were they an actual stranger? I don't know. I guess that's up for you to decide. Oh, okay. So it's kind of like <laughs> in the movies when you ask something and you're like, you're going to have to. Okay, great. You're going to have to watch it for yourself. All right. We'll carry on. <laughs> School got out at 2.20 p.m. and Amy walked with two friends to Bay Village Square. It's an open plan shopping center that is one block away from their school. There is no evidence that a choir event ever took place on this day, and it's believed that Amy made this up. Each day when Amy would arrive home from school after riding her bike, she would call her mother to let her know that she had made it. On this particular day, it was 3.10 p.m. when Amy's brother Jason called their mother to let her know that Amy had not arrived home from school yet. Okay, so out of the ordinary, obviously. Right. What is a strange part of this case is that Amy, Amy's mother told reporters that Amy herself called Amy's mother while she was at work at exactly 3.30 p.m. to let her know that everything was fine. Amy's mother, Margaret, misunderstood this phone call and was under the impression that Amy was safe and letting her know she had made it home. Caller ID was not around back in 1989, and she had no way of knowing where the call came from, but incorrectly assumed it had come from her house. 
So the brother had said, hey, the sister's not home yet. It's 310. And then 20 minutes later, mom gets a call from the daughter and she just said, I'm safe. Uh, Letting her know that everything was fine. So, of course, Margaret gets that call, you know, Uh, hey, I'm fine. So she just assumed she was home. Right. She's taking it as, okay, she made it home. I probably have nothing to worry about, which, I mean, makes sense. Because if you couldn't really trace where the call came from, that's what you would assume. Police believe that the person that took Amy allowed her to call her mother to throw off any kind of suspicion since Amy's mother believed everything was fine, thus giving the abductor more time with Amy before sounding any kind of alarm bells. Margaret, Amy's mother, got off work at 5.30 p.m., and you can imagine the panic that ensued when she arrived home to realize that Amy, in fact, never arrived home from school that day. She quickly called the parents of Amy's friends, all of which claimed that they hadn't seen or heard from her. Margaret drove over to the school and found that Amy's bike was still in the bike rack. Oh. Right? This bike was the only way that Amy came to and from school every day. At 5.52 p.m., Amy's mother contacted police and filed a missing persons report. All cops were dispatched to the area and the FBI was also called to the scene. Police canvassed the shopping mall and many recalled seeing the 10-year-old with an older man, possibly someone that they all thought could have been her father. Okay. So to me, people saying that, that they thought that it was her father, kind of gave me the impression that she was comfortable with him. Or she knew him. Or she knew him because clearly no one saw them together and thought that it was weird or that she was in any kind of danger. Well, I think if she had that stranger danger presentation, right, she's a young kid. I feel like those kind of things, if you go back to what are they called, like the the dare don't dare do, program yeah, yeah. do drugs or whatever it is <laughs> right um, right when you're going through it it's every you're just so impressionable that you don't talk to strangers because you don't know them right so here she is at the mall with a man you would think especially on the same day having that presentation if she felt that he was a stranger she wouldn't have gone she wouldn't have gone so she was, probably would have freaked somebody. out it had to be somebody she knew. it had to be somebody she knew in my opinion okay. definitely all right Uh, Witnesses recalled that the man had dark hair and was possibly going bald. Just a side note here, we have linked a picture of the man that the sketch artist was able to draw on our social media accounts if you want to go and check those out to get an idea. How did they get the sketch drawn of this person? Just from all the witnesses? From all of the witnesses. A lot of people came forward because, like I said, they thought that it was her father. So I think people were willingly giving up information because they didn't feel that this little girl was in danger. Hmm. I wonder how many people came forward and actually gave the same account versus was, were these people just a part of it, right? And just giving them information to give whomever adopted the girl in general more time. More time. One witness recalled that the man walked directly up to Amy, stooped over to speak with her for a moment, and led her directly over to his car. What police and FBI weren't aware of at the time was that a few days prior, Amy had received a secret phone call at home from a man named Frank. Oh. Frank claimed to be her mother's co-worker and that she was getting a promotion. Frank told Amy that he wanted to throw her mother a surprise party and take Amy to the mall to pick out a gift for her mother. Definitely way to play on that, though. That's really sad. It is because here she went to the mall meeting this stranger, whoever it was. Something nice. Something nice. And that's why she lied about the choir event, right? To kind of throw her mom off. So if her bike was still at the school, right, and that's her only transportation 
Do did he pick her up at school? Well, she walked with her two friends to the mall. Remember, so she it was just a mile away from so the school, it, and they walked to the shopping center well, I together. Guess my, then my question is, if she walked to the to the mall with these two friends, where did these two friends go? Right, or did they know anything, or did they kind of? did they ditch her halfway through and she's like no I've got it I'll finish the walk there again it was only a mile away so I don't know if they just kind of went separate ways or what exactly happened like but even it, though you I feel like when you say it's a mile away for a little kid right. in my mind that's a long way to walk but, I mean it's 1989 kids. it's not like today I feel like everyone walks back then so but it's a mile's <laughs> not like a a two-second walk you're right. for a little kid. <laughs> okay, you're right. <laughs> Needless to say, I don't know where the friends went. Okay. Were they at the mall? I couldn't find anything on that, you know. So, again, I don't know if they just kind of went separate ways. But it was only Amy and the man that witnesses saw walking to his car. Okay. Sadly, on February 8th, 1990, so three months later, a jogger found the body of a young girl about 50 miles from Bay Village that was soon identified as Amy's. Due to the nature of her body, officials reported that they believed she had been dead for quite some time. Her cause of death was a combination of stab wounds, including some to her neck, as well as some below her head. Wow. Yeah, it was very brutal. We have also linked um, a photo of the field that Amy was located in on our social media accounts if you want to head over and get a visual of that as well. Evidence found at the scene of the crime suggests that Mihaljevic's body was probably dumped there shortly after her abduction. Based on findings by the county coroner, Mihaljevic's last meal was some sort of soy substance, possibly an artificial chicken product or Chinese food. There was no evidence that she had any kind of Chinese food, you know, with her family the day before or anything like it was that. Probably something at so the mall I'm then. assuming, right, I'm assuming he fed her at the mall or somehow there was dinner involved at some point with him. Other evidence includes the presence of yellow and gold colored fibers on her body. It appears her killer also took several souvenirs, including the girl's horse riding boots she was wearing, her denim backpack, a binder with the quote Buick best in class, uh, turquoise earrings in the shape of horse heads, blood believed to be that of Mihaljevic was found in her underwear, indicating she may have been raped or sexually abused. Oh and I did read that when the police did discover her body, her underwear was found inside out, which I feel like just kind of goes into the possibility that something did happen to her. How sad. Yes. He took a lot of souvenirs. He did take a lot of souvenirs. To me, you basically stripped her of quite a few things that she what that did, she was wearing, what did that you she had. With. Right. That's isn't that kind of unusual? Don't a lot of the most well, maybe not most. I I always assume that it was a specific souvenir and just one. Yeah, it usually is. It's usually one thing and it's one souvenir. I feel like the more they you take. take, it's more evidence, right? That you're just hiding or storing. Yeah, it's and... a lot. I don't know of any other case that I can think of, at least off the top of my head, that they have taken more than one item or multiple items yeah, that were right. very specific as well. The Bay Village Police and the FBI conducted an extensive investigation into her disappearance and murder. The case generated thousands of leads. Dozens of suspects were asked to take lie detector tests, but no one was ever charged with the crime. This was described to be the biggest search in Ohio since 1951's disappearance of Beverly Potts. I know that's 
not really a case that you're familiar with and possibly it's one we'll cover down the road but that was a big case at the time so the fact that you know this was something that took national news at the time that's a big deal That's a really big deal. In November 2006, it was revealed that several other young girls had received phone calls similar to the ones Mihaljevic received in the weeks prior to her abduction. The unknown male caller claimed that he worked with the girl's mother and wanted to help buy a present to celebrate their promotions. The girls who received these calls lived in North Olmsted, a, sur- a suburb. There I go with the words. <laughs> and in And it's back. <laughs> Near Bay Village. Some had unlisted phone numbers. So that's something that's interesting is here he was calling, calling these girls at another point in time, also stating the same story. And, you know, it... It just, it's crazy that he was doing that. That takes a lot of guts, I think, to, to do that and to kind of have the same story and the same reason for calling. So I guess kind of like cold calling in a sense, right? Just kind of seeing who you can get to figure it out. Well, I feel like, I mean, back in 1989, right? Everybody, I'm sure, still kept their doors unlocked. Everybody knew everyone in their neighborhood. They all talked to each other since, you know, obviously, as you stated before, it seems like it's a really small town. Right. So I I don't know if it would necessarily be out of the ordinary to them. Yeah. Um, no, just that because makes sense. I feel like if somebody did call, right, even if uh, the girl told the mom or whatever, who's to say that it doesn't, it didn't actually happen yeah. in real life. Yeah. Somewhere else that wasn't a murderer or an abductor. Right. I just think that takes a lot of nerve to do that and just kind of I mean, again, this was a while ago, so things are different now, but just kind of hoping I'm going to do this and see how many girls I can, you know, call and give this story to and how many will meet me to go get a gift for their mother. It's really that sad. makes sense. No, it does. I think it's really sad because he took advantage of uh, young women that at a very impressionable and innocent, trusting age. Right. And it's really unfortunate. Right. This new information was considered significant by investigators. Mahalovic and the others who received such calls had all visited the local Lake Erie Nature and Science Center, which had a visitor's logbook by the front door. The girls may have all signed the book and added personal information, including their phone numbers and addresses. Oh, okay. So my question here was, who has kids, right? Who has kids signing a visitor's logbook? I mean, I understand to an extent but I don't know why we need the phone numbers and personal information, including their addresses of children. In the world that we live in today, I don't believe that that would be a thing. Back then, I think everyone was really trusting. I mean, how many people back then would leave their front doors unlocked? Yeah, absolutely. We're over here going to take out the trash and wanting to lock it behind us. So I just don't think that the world now is as trusting as it was. In late 2013, investigator Phil Thorsney returned from retirement to work on this case, to which he had been originally assigned after the murder. Thorsney stated that he believed Mihaljevic was transported out of Bay Village after she had been kidnapped, as the town is too dense and too close-knit to be a likely place to commit murder. Yeah. However, he stated that the murder likely took place in Ashland County, which the murder was probably familiar with. And this was the neighboring county next door. Okay. Is this the one where the one girl got the call? Yeah. So it was happening in, in multiple counties. Okay. Um, but all, all relatively in the same area. Okay. The FBI announced in March, 2014, 
that a $25,000 reward was available to anyone who could provide information that led to the arrest and conviction of the killer of Mahalovic. Oh, I'm sure there was a lot of money back then, too. Yeah. In October, it increased to $27,000. Okay. In 2016, it was discovered that a blanket and curtain were located near Mahalovic's body that had hairs on it that were similar to the Mahalovic's family dog. They were possibly used to conceal the victim's body before she was left in the field, meaning the, the curtain. So whether he wrapped her in the curtain, I'm not sure, but I know investigators did find it on the side of the body. But I think it's important to remember that back then, DNA wasn't a thing. That's right. I, right? Was, I initially thought that you had stated that well, from what you had said, I initially thought that he had taken a curtain from their home, but it's the fibers rubbed off on whatever he right. had probably, Right, probably from the clothes that she was wearing, yeah. whether the dog's hair was stuck on the clothes and then got in the curtain. Oh, I'm sure it did. We have dogs and kids in every <laughs> We understand. I feel like anyone with dogs does, but it took until 2016 to, to find those hairs and to realize, hey, we could probably test, test these. for DNA. Yeah. Did they test for DNA? They did. That's how they knew that it came from their dog. In 2018, investigators were also following a potential link between identity thief Robert Ivan Nichols, also known as Joseph Newton Chandler III. Good lord. Quite a difference of names. That's that's quite a mouthful of either name. (laughs) And the murder of Mahalovic. In 2019, authorities stated that he had been extensively investigated at the time and all suspects in the case were cleared to be a part of the list. So everyone had been interviewed. Anyone that they thought was a possible suspect back in the day had been cleared. But I think this kind of goes back to lie detector tests and they thought, hey, if you pass this, then you're good. Oh, 1980. Yeah. Right. As now, obviously, it can't even be used as any type of evidence no, whatsoever. And, and I believe that it shouldn't be anyways. No, I think you can, you know, fold yourself out of a, a lie detector test anyway. Right. In numerous type of ways. Right. Did they, did we ever find out why he was a suspect or anything like that? Um, I'm not sure how he came to be. I know they had a long list of suspects, some of which included volunteers at that nature center that I mentioned earlier. Um, But we're getting there. He kind of plays into the story. I was about to say, I wonder (laughs) if he's a resident in the one county. In 2021, on the 31st anniversary of the discovery of Mahalovic's remains, a major development in the case was announced. A publicly (laughs) unidentified man. I don't know if we can edit that one out, you guys. We might have to just deal with that. I'm not editing it out. Who was 64 by this time, was implicated by a former girlfriend with whom he was involved with at the time of the kidnapping and murder. She alleged that he was was not acting like himself, let's say that, (laughs) and was absent from their residence located in close proximity to the abduction site when the victim disappeared. Oh. The man called her late that evening inquiring if she had seen the news release about the abduction. He was employed in the same city, and his niece was in the same grade as Mahalovic. Oh. Police interviews with the man included suspicious statements, including the possibility he had met Amy Mahalovic's mother, Margaret, before. His DNA was obtained without protest from him, and he later failed a polygraph test. Okay. A warrant to search his storage facility led to authorities 
confiscating certain items of interest. Oh, did they find his souvenirs or the tokens? All that's ever been released was items of interest. So to me, I'm, I think it's a possibility yeah. because there were a lot of things that were taken. Additionally, the two individuals who witnessed the yet-to-be-identified kidnapper lead Mahalovic into his vehicle, identified the potential suspect out of lineups conducted in May 2020. Oh, wow. So, I mean, years Years. The vehicle itself was consistent with what the man drove at the time, including the fact of the carpeting being similar in coloration to the fibers on Mahalovic's body. Oh, wow. A vehicle of the same make and model had been observed near the body's dump site on February 8th, 1990, when the victim's body was recovered along the roadside. Wow. Right? Please tell me we convicted him. (laughs) So in here, I feel like in this case, in most cases, people are creeps. It's always the people that want to hang around, see themselves on the news, Find out if other people are aware that they exist. Oh, you mean always going back to the to the site of where Absolutely. they murdered or where they dumped? Yeah. Right. Because that's a characteristic of murderers. Yeah. It always comes down to the attention-seeking predators. I'm not saying that all predators are like that, but as we all know in true crime, it's a very common trait among suspects. It's kind of like when the murderer goes to the victim's funeral. That's a very common thing. Really? Yes. So detectives will be there. Little do they know that the murderer is actually at the funeral. It's just, it's what they do. It's kind of like they take the the, the souvenirs and they go to the funeral and like they want like to see themselves. It's kind of like a slap in the face of, I'm here and you see me and you're not doing anything. Right. I couldn't find a lot of information in regards to the new suspect that they are still to this day leaving unnamed. As of today, the killer is yet to be identified. So this was in 2020. Are you stating that they're still investigating this individual? Yes, they are still leaving him unnamed and no one has been, you know, convicted. Interesting. So I wonder if they have this person in custody. Right. If they do, they're not letting us know. Every year, Bay Village and the FBI get 75 to 100 tips in Amy's case. They say they follow up on every single one of them. In the past two years alone, the department has spent $75,000 on advanced DNA testing. In the past, this is what investigators have said about how crucial the testing is to the case. In response to her daughter's death, Margaret McNulty co-founded an organization to protect children from abductions and dangerous situations like Amy had found herself in. It's really nice. However, even as the years passed, Margaret herself could never really recover from her own loss. In August 2000, almost 11 years after Amy's horrific slaying, she moved to Las Vegas to be closer to her own mother and start a life for herself, but her past was something she couldn't let go of. Margaret was depressed, found solace in alcohol, and with her lupus being in the mix of all of that, it wasn't working out for her. In 2001, after she didn't answer her mother's call for about two weeks, and then she wasn't opening her apartment door for her mother, the police were informed. They broke in and found her dead inside. She had passed away several days before, and the Clark County coroner confirmed that her cause of death was from severe complications of lupus that she suffered due to chronic alcoholism. 
That's really sad. It is really sad. I have a quick question, though. Yeah. When you were saying that she (laughs) was depressed, did you say soulless or she found solace? You know, I want to say that. Because I heard soulless. I'm pretty sure I said soulless. Because to be fair, in my in my writing here, that's what it looks like. So you said soulless. Okay, it's you know, solace. You she guys found should... solaces and she found comfort out of in this alcohol. Okay. Out of this whole case, that's what she's gonna focus on. <laughs> We're gonna focus on all the words that I cannot say. This true crime podcast has become a comedy podcast at my own expense. Solace in alcohol. So it's not solace. <laughs> solace solace she found solaces and she found comfort well i mean i'm aware of what the word means whether (laughs) i say solace oh i could see how that sounds a little (laughs) yeah i was about to say i'm sorry you guys that's too big of a clip for us to edit out so solace yes in the alcohol nonetheless it's very sad and tragic it is what happened to her mother especially because i think it broke up their family you know that her parents did end up getting divorced. And like I mentioned, she moved from Cleveland, Ohio to Las Vegas. And it makes me sad because Amy's brother was still there. Oh, he's right. So Cleveland. it's kind of, yeah. And he, he still needed a family. So it's yeah. kind of like this, this massive thing that happened to them tore them apart. But I, again, I feel like that's a very common thing that happens, unfortunately. Yeah. And I think people just go their separate ways. It is great, though, that uh, Margaret was able to co-found an organization to prevent child abductions and dangerous situations. It's sad that this type of situation had to bring about, right, something really wonderful and and destroyed, unfortunately, so many lives by just one abduction. But um, I'm sure that this organization that she founded has done really amazing things since then. Definitely. Amy's disappearance became a national story. It was on America's Most Wanted, hosted by John Walsh. And I'm not sure if you are aware of this just because you're the true crime skeptic here. I think everyone else is probably aware. John Walsh's child actually went missing. Did you know that? Yes, I did. My my mother was obsessed with John Walsh. See, I know things about true crime. I just get bored listening to it. (laughs) So that's why you focus on the words. I cannot speak. <laughs> no, Got it. I'm listening to the thing as an entirety. I'm just judging you about 15% based on your enunciation. <laughs> that's all. It's okay. I'm judging myself a lot more than 15%. <laughs> you should be. Uh, today, Amy's case, unfortunately, remains unsolved. I hope that one day, you know, we can do a, cu- a case update on this and say that it is solved and that maybe one day they will come out and say that the unidentified man that, you know, the girlfriend came forward and said, hey, this is what happened. Maybe it comes out who he is, or there's ties to the case, or it does get solved, because that's a really long time to go unsolved, and it's sad. It is very sad. I definitely hope that something does come from the unidentified suspect, and her family can finally find the closure, you know, that they so very much deserve. Absolutely. That was the case this week on Amy Maholovic. Thank you for letting me tell it to you and only making fun of me halfway through. (laughs) I waited to the very end. (laughs) We need like a blooper reel or something. (laughs) All right, you guys, on to my favorite part of the episode. Here's this week's tea time. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, suspected shoplifter Jacob Wise sneakily removed security tags from clothes he was planning to steal from a store. The alarm went off anyways as Wise strolled through the exit. 
Y. Apparently, Wise wasn't as wise as his name suggests. He had put the removed tags in his pocket. Sneakily. Put them <laughs> sneakily. In his you know, pocket. I just want you to know, writing the word sneakily well, I mean, and right. then saying it out loud, I thought... That is a word, right? Because it doesn't, <laughs> words doesn't really, <laughs> words are hard. We should put that on merch. <laughs> Tion Crime, words, words are, are hard. hard. That's great. I, that might be done. my new thing. Done. Do you want to, <laughs> speaking of comedy and jokes, do you want to hear a joke? I love your jokes. Okay. So what's the difference between an amateur thief and a professional thief? I love this already, and I'm very intrigued, so please tell me more. <laughs> An amateur thief says, give me all your money. Kind of like, you know, you with me. <laughs> give me all that, your money. Me. That is a little true. I'm not going to admit it's, to all of it. It's not true. a little true. It's 95%. <laughs> she does say, give me all your money. Anyway, back to the joke. A professional thief says, sign here, please. <laughs> That's a great joke. It is, right? I love your jokes at the end. I think they might be my favorite. Too bad the one about you always taking my money is true and not a joke. Maybe like 97%, (laughs) but I'm not going to admit to any more than that. She always takes the money. It's fine. All right, you guys. So before we end this episode, we wanted to announce that our podcast, The Tea on Crime, has now joined Patreon. For those of you that aren't familiar with what that is, it's a monthly subscription page platform that will be ad-free with bonus extra episodes that are exclusive only to our Patreon listeners. So you guys can go ahead and head on over to our page and it's at patreon.com slash T on crime. So it's P-A-T's and Tango R-E-O-N dot com slash T on crime to hear more tea being spilt. Uh, we really we're really excited about this and be able to provide you guys with extra bonus content. And then, you know, as always, even though we just started this, but we really appreciate all of your support. Yeah, definitely. And if you guys haven't checked out our Patreon page yet, we actually released a case last weekend on Robert Wan. And that is such it's such a bizarre story. So if you haven't heard that yet, head on over so you can listen to that. But I will tell you since Brittany did not prepare me for that story uh the that case in particular the way that it comes about just know that those details are very graphic so please prepare yourself absolutely I, I put a disclaimer in there to please take care when you are listening because it does talk about it does talk about rape and things like that and of course we want to make sure that we are paying tribute to the victim and not yes. focusing on the crime as always with any of our cases yes he definitely needs to be known people he, need to know about him. he does so like I said before if you haven't heard the story of Robert Wan please head over to Patreon so that you can listen to that that's it for today's episode episode, you guys. For all of our Tiaholics that enjoyed our show today, please remember to go and rate the show on whatever platform you are listening to. Give us a follow on Facebook at Tea on Crime Podcast, Instagram at Tea on Crime Podcast, Twitter at Tea on Crime Pod, and I've actually started a TikTok, which is a whole <laughs> new community. She struggles with TikTok. <laughs> TikTok and words. We are on TikTok as well at Tea on Crime Podcast if you want to go and check that out. I'm your host, Britt. And I'm your co-host, Jessica, and we will be back next week to serve you more tea on all things true crime. Bye!